And so uh, today we're going to take a little bit of a side trail. We're going to take an excursion uh, down a, a side trail in Second Peter, or that Second Peter kind of propels us into. You'll see what I'm talking about in about two minutes. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Scottsdale Bible Church and for the rich history this church has in teaching your word and banding together as the body of Christ and serving and praying and worshiping and loving others. And Father, um, as you know, I, I feel a real honor to uh, be one of the pastors here and to, uh, to teach the word of God. And so God bless this time. Uh, Lord, may uh, what is taught be right, may it be true. Uh, and Lord, may all of us as participants in this time be willing to live out that which we know to be true and that which we study and realize in your word. Um, God, we're going to talk about this idea of, of glory today. And so help us understand it, Father. May in the next 30 minutes we forever put to rest our confusion on what we mean about the glory of yourself, the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I hinted to in my prayer, here's what's happened. Over the last few weeks that we've been studying 2 Peter, a word has appeared that like appears all over the Bible and that I hear Christians talk about the, all the time. It's the word glory. How many of you have ever heard that word? I mean, you hear Christians say, you know, glory to God, and we sang it like at least eight times in the songs that we sung today. And, and then you hear preachers talk about it. You read Christian books, they talk about it. The Bible talks a lot about it. It's been mentioned twice in 2 Peter already. It's going to be mentioned again in chapters 2 and 3. First Peter, the letter we studied last year, mentions it 10 times. And check this out, the entire Bible mentions the word glory, the glory of God, over 360 times in the Bible. So do the math. Out of 66 books, that's carry the one about five different times every book of the Bible. On average, this idea of the glory of God is mentioned. And yet here's the problem, and that is that the average Christian today, the average follower of Christ, I don't think could define the glory of God to save their souls. I mean, when I talk to people and I'll say, you know, what do you think the glory of God is? The answers are all over the map. And, and I relate to that too. I've been a Christian now almost 30 years, been to seminary, have an earned master's degree in divinity. And it wasn't up until about six years ago when I did an in-depth study on the glory of God on one of my study breaks that I finally got it, that I finally could describe and define the glory of God. And quite frankly, it took my walk with God from black and white to technicolor. It truly allowed me to see God and his kingdom in a whole new light to finally understand what we mean by this phrase or what the Bible means by the glory of God. So I want to take a little side trail from 2 Peter today and I want us to talk about the glory of God and then we're going to continue this when I get back from my study break. And so with no more introductory words, uh, let's not beat around the bush. Here's, here's a very simple but profound truth that will carry you through years in your understanding of the glory of God and it's your main point here this morning, look up here on the screen, and it's simply this, that I would submit to you that we see God, that we know or experience God only in and through his glory, and that you need to learn to give him glory in order to see his glory. And that's in a capsulized format what the Bible makes very clear, that we see God, and I'm using see in obviously a figurative sense there, that we experience God only in and through his glory, and that you need to learn to give him glory if you're ever going to see his glory. And so notice two things that I'm suggesting there, folks. First, notice that I'm saying that God reveals himself only in and through his glory. 
I mean, by definition, as we're going to see in a minute, the glory of God is actually the primary means of how God reveals himself to you and I. So if you don't understand or recognize the glory of God and know where and how to see it, you're not going to really experience him or know him as he wants you to. And then secondly, notice that I'm saying that in order to truly see and know his glory, which allows us to see and know him, you must learn to give him glory in all that you say. And so let's break this down a little bit so we understand it. Up to this point in the message, I've been using that word glory. I've probably used it like 30 times in the first, what, four minutes, and we have yet to define our terms. And so I want to give you a very workable, very clear definition of what we mean by God's glory. Look up here on the screen, and it's simply this, that God's glory is God's external manifestations, or it's anything that flows from God. I don't think the average Christian really understands this. It's much more broad than the way I hear people use the word glory today. The glory of God is his external, man it's his external manifestations. It's anything that flows from him. In other words, God's glory is anything that shines forth from his actions, his words, and his appearances. And so follow the logic of this, folks. The word glory in the Bible literally means something that is worthy of praise or honor. That's what glory means. Anything that's worthy of praise or honor. And yet because all or anything of God is worthy of praise or honor, I mean he's perfect, mind you, then it would only make sense that anytime anything of who God is shines forth, anytime anything of God's character or essence springs forth, then by definition it's his glory. Do you see that? And like how the famous author and pastor John Piper puts it, he says, God's glory is, and I quote, the visible splendor of God's manifold perfections. That's a great definition of God's glory. It's the visible splendor. It's what you and I see of God's manifold perfections. Or put more simply, he says, it's what God is like in his unveiled magnificence and excellence. That's the glory of God. It's anything that we ever hear, see, or know of God in his actions, thoughts, or personhoods. And so kind of, or personhoods, so kind of think of it like our physical sun, which has, in essence, all of itself. I mean, it's made up of gas and chemicals. You all know that. But then it shines forth and emits light and heat that you and I see. So the glory of the sun, what you and I experience and see, is not the core gases and, and, and essence of it. We can't see and experience that. What we see and experience is the light and the heat, right? Give me a head nod if you understand that. And with God, the Bible says, it's the same. He has a core and an essence of who he is. Much of it we don't know and can't see. But then there's stuff that he emits of who he is that shines forth. And the Bible says that's his glory. And so whether it's his words that he says or the actions that he does, or even whether it flows from God's joy, sadness, happiness, or even his anger, which the Bible says is always righteous, it's all good and beautiful if it emits from an all-perfect God. Anything that emits from God is his glory. You know, it's interesting, the first time that this word glory appears in the Bible as it relates to God is in Exodus chapter 16. And many of you know the story. The Israelites are wandering in the desert after coming out of Egypt. There's over a million of them. And they're hungry and they're tired and they start to grumble and whine. I know it's really hard to imagine God's people grumbling and whining, but just bear with me for a minute, all right? So they're grumbling and they're whining there in the desert. And, and as we all know, God provides for them what? 
manna, right? You guys remember that, manna, food to eat. And in Moses, in telling the people of God's provision, in Exodus chapter 16, beginning at verse 6, says this, track with this. He says, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see, here it is, the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, the Lord is going to give you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you have grumbled against him. So it's interesting, the glory of the Lord was in what? In the provision. The fact that God provided for his people, that he acted in their lives. That's the first description of his glory. And then the next appearance is in Exodus chapter 24, when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai, and God speaks to Moses, remember that, in the cloud, and it says that his glory was there in the cloud, and he speaks to Moses. So God then speaks to Moses, and that's his glory. And then in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses wants even more of God's glory. So he asks him to show him more of his glory. He's just like us. He wants to experience more of God. And so what does God do? He has Moses, you guys remember this, stand in the cleft of the rock. And as God passes by, it says that his glory was there. And then God spoke to him that famous passage, the Lord, the Lord, God of compassion and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, God spoke to him, and the Bible calls that his glory. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Anytime God does something in the Bible, anytime God does a thought or an action or a speaking, the Bible says that in its essence is his glory. It's his external manifestations, his perfections that are shown to me and you. Truly, we only see God in his glory. There's no other way to see him. And so, folks, if you're tracking with me so far and you get this, then you got to be asking, well, where in what ways then, Jamie, has God chosen to display and reveal himself? In other words, if we truly see God only in his glory, and obviously we don't see all of God, then where do we most see his glory and hence stand the most chance of experiencing him and seeing him? That would be like the most important question, right? And folks, this is where things actually get exciting. Because when you look closely at the scriptures, as well as the world around us, and the history of people who have truly known God, you begin to see that God has chosen to reveal his glory in three primary ways. And I mean mainly in three ways. I'm going to give them to you in a minute. And yet before I give them to you, I need you to think with me of all the different ways that followers of Jesus try to experience God's glory today. Because we're real good at trying to seek God through every little nook and cranny, aren't we? I mean, I hear people say all the time, they got a feeling and they thought that was God, right? You get a feeling and that's God. We think he's spoken to us. Or how about people that say a chain of events happened to them, their circumstances, and so they say, well, God must be moving. Or they hear a good friend or maybe a respected Christian leader on the radio say something and they claim God has talked to them. I mean, as followers of Jesus, we look for God in every little way that we can. And and don't get me wrong, folks, I'm not suggesting that God does not choose to reveal himself at times through our feelings or through our circumstances or certainly not through others. He does. But get this, these are not the primary ways that God has chosen to manifest his glory and hence himself. They're not. 
But once you become a cogent student of the Bible, you realize that there's three other ways that God has chosen to reveal himself that are the primary ways, and our feelings and our circumstances and even others become more window dressing, they become more sideshow events than they are the core of how God has chosen to reveal himself and his glory to you and me. And so with that set up, you've got to be saying, well, Jamie, what are these three ways? And one of the things that I love about preaching is alliteration, meaning that these all are going to begin with C. I'm telling you, this is going to preach really well. You ready for these? I'm going to give them to you right up front, and then we're going to walk through each one. Here are the three primary ways that the Scripture tells us that God has chosen to reveal His glory, and that is in Christ, in creation, and in the church. Man, you're going to love this. This, this, this really has the power to rock your, your experience with God. In Christ, in creation, and in the church. Uh, first, notice with me that first and foremost, God has chosen to display his glory and hence himself in the person of Jesus Christ, in Christ. Uh, the scriptures couldn't be more clear. John 1 verse 14 says this. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his, here it is, glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word here obviously is referring to Jesus, and notice that he is the glory from the Father. Christ is the glory of God. And how, may we ask, is Christ the glory of God? Well, Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 answers this. Look at this. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, now get this, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So Christ is the radiance of God's glory. John 1.14 told us that too. But don't miss that the reason that this is so is because Christ is God come in the flesh. He's the exact representation of his nature. Christ is the physical, visible, verbal outpouring of God. Christ, in being the glory of God, is how God speaks to us, how God has brought us to himself through the forgiveness of our sins. And so in Jesus Christ, God has chosen to display his glory through saving and speaking, saving us and speaking to us. And by the way, folks, this is why Jesus Christ is so absolutely critical in any serious discussion about God and why the Bible says that you can't know God outside of knowing Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a tough thing to swallow. I mean, the reality is you and I live in a very multicultural society. Give me a head nod if you get that today, right? Very multicultural today. And I would argue that multiculturalism in many ways is a good thing. We've learned to get along with each other better in this world. We've learned to understand other cultures and embrace them in very life-giving and meaningful ways. But one of the problems with multiculturalism today is that we end up hearing and maybe even thinking that, 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 that we have to accept every notion of what someone or some other group says about eternal truth and even God and how we know him. And what's crazy about that, folks, is that that's a mindless approach to truth, just accepting what anybody and everybody says about eternal truth, and nobody in the history of the known world has ever functioned like that. I mean, we're the first culture to do that. We're the first culture to say, well, hey, all roads lead to Rome. Let's just accept what everybody says and melt it all together and just let bygones be bygones. Life doesn't work that way. The reality is, is that there is such thing as truth. It's out there. It's external truth that has come to us 
And one of the awesome news that the Bible gives us is that it's come to us in Jesus Christ. That God has chosen to reveal his glory. It's the greatest news to ever hit humankind in Christ. And he is the radiance, the power, the expression of God. And without him, we don't know God in any salvific sense. You know, it's interesting, we're going to look in just a minute at the other two primary ways that God has chosen to reveal his glory in creation and the church, and these are going to be very life-giving as well, but you know what both of these other two expressions of glory have in common that set them apart from this first one? And that is that neither of them have the power to bring you to God in any salvific or eternal way. It's true. I mean, we're going to see in a minute, they, creation and the church can give us some very meaningful experiences of God and even teach us some awesome things about him. But in the end, they cannot save your soul. Church and creation cannot save your soul. Only Christ can save your soul and bring you to God in a way that is eternal in nature. That is God's plan. And this is why, by the way, that the church forever must remain, as long as we're here on this earth, as a Christ-obsessed institution or a Christ-obsessed group of people. I I mean, if we ever forget that it is Christ that has saved us, it is Christ that renews us, it is Christ that we need to wake up every morning and say, He's mine and I'm His, and, and Lord, I worship you in fullness and in truth. If we ever forget that, we're sunk. We're sunk even before we start. And so I don't know what you do when you get dry, But when I get dry spiritually, you know what I do? I just focus on Christ. I read the Gospels. I I imitate him. I, I, I cry out to him because in him is grace and truth. In him is God's revelation in glory. Folks, don't ever forget this. The first way we see God's glory is in the man and the God, Jesus Christ. Now, the second place that God has so clearly and visibly declared his glory, and I love this one, is in creation. Look at what Psalm 19, verses 1 and, 2, 1 and 2 says. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day they pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And I think we all know that heavens here refers to all the cosmos, right? All created things, stars and planets, and earth. And what do they do, the text says? They tell of the glory of God. And in actually doing, don't miss, they do two things in declaring God's glory. First, creation bears witness that there is a creator. It's true. It tells us that there's much more to this world than what we see, that there's a creator who is behind it all, and that he is good, and that he is awesome. And so the idea is that you're supposed to see the beauty and majesty of nature and creation and say, whoa. This could not have gotten here on its own. There must be a creator God behind it and that you're supposed to seek him from this. Most of you have heard of Isaac Newton. He was clearly one of the most intelligent and brilliant physicists that our world has ever known. And listen to what um, Isaac Newton said about creation and God. Look up here on the screen. This is so cool. He says this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God. So creation, folks, is God's glory and tells us that he is behind it all. And then notice a second thing that that creation does in declaring God's glory, and that is that it actually does give us then some knowledge and truth about who God is and how amazing he is. Isn't that awesome? 
Look at verse 2. It says, day to day it pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So creation teaches us about God. And all I can tell you is that when you look at the world around us, you begin to realize and see this. I mean, you ever taken a hike in the mountains and realized the awesomeness and majesty of God? Have you ever thought about intricate and complex atoms and subatomic particles and realized the intelligence and cleverness of God? I mean, even things like platypuses and seahorses teach us things about God, right? If not anything, about his intricate design and maybe even his sense of humor. I mean, why would God make animals like this? I mean, it just shows his incredible creative ability. And all this was designed so that we might see his glory. Do you see this? He made this world. And creation's filled with things that just testify to his glory. And as you and I know, this is under attack today. And so there's plenty of times, like yesterday, when I'm out hiking in the desert, and honestly, I'm trying to be open-minded, but I think to myself, come on, blind, random chance? I don't think so. The glory of an intricate and loving maker who loves me and wants me to enjoy this and to see this and give praise to him. I think that's the design behind creation. And notice with me as well that creation also displays a moral quality about God's glory. Look at Isaiah 6.3. It says, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Many of us have read this passage before and, you know, we thought, well, that's kind of quaint. God's holy. But notice here that it links his holiness with creation and his glory linked together. So the rightness of creation, the beauty and majesty of it also reveals God's goodness and high moral qualities. Truly, God is seen in his creation. You know, I got to tell you, for most of my Christian life, I've not really honored this I became a Christian, as many of you know, back in 1981 as a young guy, about 17 or 18 years old. And as I started to go into my college studies, I read guys like, you know, Thoreau and Emerson and Rousseau, and I just thought they were a bunch of wussies. I really did. I just thought, you know, I mean, who, get, who gets into nature and sits on a back porch and, and, and gets into a pond? I just thought, that's goofy. You know, and I remember reading them going, you know, what, what's that about? And, and then I was also very, you know, young conservative guys, a new Christian. And back then, environmentalists were not... Um, well, let's just say that they were, um, well, quite frankly, insane in the early days. I mean, they really were. I mean, I think there's a lot more cogent talk today on environmentalism. I really do. But back then, it was either between whales or babies. All of you remember that day. And, and so that also kind of gave a strike in my mind against this whole stuff. So for the first 20 years of my Christian life, I just had like no room for this creation nature stuff until 1999. And my parents had uh, retired, and they bought a place in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a real small condo nestled up there against the Grand Tetons. And because it was free, and because it was my dad, I said, hey, can I go there on a study break? And he said, sure. And, and so for the last 10 years, I've gone to, to Jackson. They actually sold it since then, and I and now uh, mooch off another friend. But I've, I've, I've gone there for the last 10 years. And within the first year that I was there, I'd, I'd study for about eight hours, and then I'd take a walk. I, I learned they called it hiking, but back then I just called it a walk. And as I was taking a walk in these majestic mountains and the beautiful trees and the rivers and all of that, something happened to my heart as I started to pray to God, and, and I started to realize the majesty of his creation. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I started to relate to what maybe so, some of those earlier writers like Emerson would do when they would link the divine with nature and, and to see God's handiwork in all of it. 
As you leave today, I'm going I'm to treat you to a slideshow that you can watch or you can just say, I'm going to go hit golf balls or whatever you can do the rest of the day. But, but uh, as you leave today, I'm going to show you some slides as you're leaving of uh, one of my first study breaks where I got in touch with the glory of God. And it's going to be done to music with the song that I was listening to on my, this was before iPods, whatever. Remember those, those CD players that were like this big and you had to carry it with two hands? It was one of those. And, uh, and, 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 and I was just awestruck with God's majesty and his glory. We'll see what that does for you. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is an author that some of you have read. He's one of the great apologists or defenders of the Christian faith today. And uh, he wrote about the Apollo 8 mission in 1968 when the astronauts were heading home and for the first time they got a glimpse of earth from so very far above. Listen to what he says. I love this. He says, on Christmas Day 1968, the three astronauts of Apollo 8 circled the dark side of the moon and headed for home. Suddenly over the horizon of the moon rose the blue and white earth, garlanded by the glistening light of the sun against the black void of space. He says, those sophisticated men trained in science and technology did not utter Einstein's name. They did not even go to the poets, the lyricists, or even the dramatists. Only one thing, he says, could capture the awe-inspiring thrill of this magnificent observation. Billions heard the voice from outer space as the astronauts said, in the beginning, God. Zechariah says only the concept worthy enough to describe the unspeakable awe, unutterable in any other way, in the beginning God created, could do. The invasive, the inescapable truth of the infinite and the eternal. We're starting to see, folks, God's glory, this revealing of himself, first and foremost in Christ and now in creation, literally can lift our sights to him if you will but let it. And so i got to ask you, are you experiencing Christ right now? If you're not, start having quiet times again. Start reading the Gospels. Start praying to Him like your life depends on it. Start relating to Jesus as your friend and as your Savior, which is what He is. And as you do, you're going to start to see His glory. And do you appreciate the movement and handiwork of God in creation? Because again, freshness can come to you when you see God in and through His glory. Now, very quickly, because we're running out of time, there's one more area that the Bible tells us that God's glory is mainly seen in, and it's quite frankly an unexpected area, and that is the church. The church. And some of you are saying, you got to be kidding me, Jamie. Uh, like Christ I get, creation I get, but the church? What's that about? Well, look at Ephesians 3, verse 21. It says to him, meaning Christ, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So don't miss, God's glory is revealed and seen in the church, which I think we all know does not mean programs or buildings. You guys understand that, right? But the people of God. So the glory, God says, is in the people, in you and I. Jesus taught us the same thing in John 17, verse 22. He says, And the glory which you have given me, referring to God, I have given to them, i.e. the church, that they may be one just as we are one. Again, the glory resides in the church. And though we don't have time to explore all of this right now, simply suffice it to say that what God is saying here is that if you want to see and experience Him, a huge part of it is going to be through fellowshipping with one another, worshiping together, sharing together, studying together, growing together, and even sharing Christ with others together. That's where the glory is found, in and with each other. I like how Bill Hybels said it years ago. He said that the local church is the hope of the world. And when he said that, I think I've told you guys before, I thought to myself, no, Christ is the hope of the world, goofball. But then I started to see what he meant. 
that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us we are the glory of Christ. And so in a very real sense, when you match the church up against academic institutions and other societal institutions, though as good as they might be, we are indeed the carriers of the gospel. We're the hope of this world. Ergo, God has said, you're some, some glory, some manifestation of me resides in you. So folks, to recap where we've come from, we see God in and through his glory. I mean, it comes through anything that admits from his perfections. It's most seen in Christ, in creation, and the church. But notice, and with this we're done, that we don't just see God in and through his glory, but in order to, to give him, in order to see his glory, you need to learn to give him glory. And some of you are saying, what's that about? One of the things you and I need to wrestle with once we understand the glory of God is that we live in a world, and even in the evangelical church today, and it's really sad, that seeks a lot of glory for itself. Have you ever noticed that? It's just so true. I mean, there's not one part of our society today, whether it be entertainment or politics or academia or whatever, that doesn't seek glory for itself. I mean, we're just wired in our sinfulness to be glory seekers. And unfortunately, it's really infiltrated the church. I mean, I hear a lot of people at times in the church try to seek glory for themselves. We become very entertainment-oriented. We're into star-building with our pastors. And, you know, all that scares me because the reality is we're not supposed to be receiving any of the glory. God is. And so one of the things that I think we need to repent of as a people of God is the fact that we've spent way too much time trying to get glory, and we need to learn to give glory to the only one who is due it. And until you learn to recognize God's glory and give it to him, you're never going to understand God and experience him as he wants to. And so real quickly, in the few minutes we have remaining, let me share with you three ways, just three ways that will get you started in which you can learn to give God glory. And I'll give them to you up front again here, and that is through the worship, through the word, and through your good works. That's how you give God glory, the scriptures say, through worshiping him, through the word, and then through your works, your good works, not that save you, but the ones that admit or come from your salvation. And so notice with me that we give God glory through our worship. Psalm 29.2 could not be more clear. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in his holy array. And so the connection here is obviously between worship and glory. And one of the primary ways that we give glory to God is to worship him. And all I can tell you is that I think, again, we got problems in the evangelical church today because I think many people come to church today and they really don't know what it means to worship God. In other words, I have men say to me all the time, and I don't mean to put some of you men on the spot, but I'm telling you, I, I, we got to change this. I have men say to me all the time, you know, Pastor, I really like your sermons. I really relate to you, and I get there just in time to hear you preach. And I'm like going, wow, is that like a confession or what? I mean... What do you mean you get there just in time to hear me preach? You mean like you're missing the first part of the service? And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but we have a church that tends to walk in just a tad bit late every now and then, right, for church. And, you know, we've tried to take all the barriers away from you in that. We really have. I mean, you know, we, we've tried to go shorter so that the parking lot's cleared out. And, you know, we try to do this courtyard thing to get you all in here. And, and yet I think there's still many of us who have this attitude, and tell me this isn't true, let's just be honest with ourselves, we have this attitude of, you know, I really don't like the singing. I don't like that singing stuff, or I don't like some of the songs that they're singing, and so, you know, let's just get on with it and get to the sermon or what have you. And I think to myself, wow, do you realize that in heaven there's going to be singing? I mean, really, it's true. 
The Bible makes it really clear. In heaven, we're going to sing. So I think some of us are really in trouble. Because like we're going to get to heaven. We're going, you know, God, I'm really not into this singing thing. I just think I'll take a seat in the corner here. God's not going to let you do that in heaven. I mean, by then, the Bible says you're going to be transformed. You're going to be like him. You're going to want to sing because your heart's not going to be crusty and hard. And so you're going you're to be singing in heaven. So the logic is, why don't you start now? Right? I mean, that's the logic. Amen. And, you know, here's the deal. I mean, who cares if it's your song or not? I mean, the words are theologically true. They're cogent. They're designed to focus you on Christ. That's the point, whether you like the tune or it's your song or not. Look, I'll tip my hand. I love all the kinds of music we do. I really do. And, and quite frankly, I'm very committed to protecting a lot of what is precious to Scottsdale Bible. I've gone on record saying that. But I was raised in the rock generation. Okay, I mean, before I got saved, I was listening to the Rolling Stones and Kiss and all that other stuff. And I'm not, I'm not always proud of that, but that was the generation I grew up in. And when I got saved, I got involved in this little Baptist church at college called College Baptist Church. And man, if you guys ever think we're traditional, I'm telling you, they, they just, they cornered the market on traditional. And, and so here I was having never heard an enlightenment-based hymn in my life, you know, and I thought I was like walking into a time warp or something like this. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's an organ? I mean, they're using this instrument I never heard. And, and these songs are like, 300 years ago, and as you guys know, some churches sing them like a dirge, you know, it's like, who died? I mean, you know, oh, Jesus did, okay, you know, so like, you know, it was just, I mean, really, I mean, as a young guy who's all excited about his faith, it was really hard, but here's what happened to me, and this was so cool, is that within one year, I learned all those songs. Here, I was, I was a young college, I learned them all, and within one year, I was lifting my heart, no one lifted their hands back then, y'all remember those days, so you didn't dare do that, but I was lifting my heart to him in worship. And I now love all those old hymns, and I worship God with them, and they draw me to Him, and I, and I can't get enough of them. I sing them throughout the week, and the choruses. Again, I, I'm a little bit more eclectic in that way because of my generation, but I just said, I love to worship God. Don't you? I mean, I love to do that. And I just hope that as we go along, that as we realize one of the ways that you're going to understand the glory of God is, is to come to church on time and look forward to that singing part. Even if you're not demonstrative, that's okay. I don't want to say you have to be like this or what have you, because that's all just outward expression. But where's your heart? Is your heart in tune to God? Are you thinking about the words? Are you allowing it to, to draw you to Him, to set up the time in the Word? That's the idea. And then next, secondly, very quickly, notice that the Word then also draws us to God's glory. or It's a way that we glorify Him. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, it's interesting, the context here is that Jesus is being tempted in the desert to seek glory himself and not give it to the Father. And so Jesus combats this by not seeking glory himself, but giving it to God by trusting him in his word. And so for thousands of years now, people down through the ages have consistently found and experienced God's glory in and through this book. So that when you read this book, you're reading what, what comes from God. It's his glory to me and you. And we give him glory through knowing and living and understanding this book. And then lastly, we give God glory in our works. Listen how Jesus would link our good works, again, not for salvation, but coming from salvation with God's glory. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we do good works in the name of Jesus and in so doing, glory is given to God. So you got worship, you got the word, you got works, all so that we can tap into what? Christ, creation, and his church. The glory of God is his external manifestations, anything of his perfection that you and I see. 
And I love how Michelangelo, the great artist, once said it in his lifetime. With this we're done, look up on the screen. He prayed this. He said, Lord, make me see your glory in every place. And when I read that this week, I thought that should be the prayer of every follower of Jesus, at least for Scottsdale Bible Church, that, Lord, may we see your glory starting this afternoon, starting right here, right now, in Christ, in creation, in the church, and in a myriad of other ways. And as a result, may we lift up worship to you and know you in your word and then do good works that glorify your name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us that has clearly come to us in Christ. I love the fact, God, that you've called us to be Christ-intoxicated people who, uh, who live on the fumes of your grace and your glory. So, Lord, uh, today we can finally, for some of us, understand what your glory is. It's anything that emits, that comes from who you are. And so it's very broad, it's very wide. But, Lord, we thank you that it's also seen in some wonderfully obvious places like your son Jesus and like the creation around us and like the church that, though imperfect, you've called to be an embodiment of your grace and glory and truth. And so, Father, I pray that as we respond to this message that we might respond by worshiping you with a renewed intensity of mind and heart. I pray, Lord, that we'd respond by digging deeper into your words so that we might understand you and all the glorious things that you revealed. And I pray, God, too, that we might be men and women who are not hypocritical in our faith but add deeds of love and kindness and grace and truth to those around us so that we might walk the talk and uh, live in a congruent way with the faith we profess. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word that has given us truth and for your spirit who guides us into a right understanding of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Hey, enjoy the slideshow as you guys head out today. God bless you, and I'll see you in a little bit.